Welcome to Speaking Out. We're mainly discussing land rights and economic empowerment. Aboriginal enterprises in mining, exploration and energy. talk a little bit about uh, Indigenous constitutional recognition. Those With Larissa Berendt. It's a fresh view coming on ABC Radio. So some of the most vulnerable people in the country are being continuously surveilled you know, having everything, all their spendings watched and being monitored and the Australian public seem to be okay with this. And there only ever seems to be some outrage when it gets closer and closer to impacting more white people. The Endless Intervention, First Nations Speak Out. This is Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Berendt. It's been almost a decade since the federal government passed the Stronger Futures in the Northern Territory Act, which is set to expire next year. Introduced by the Gillard government in 2012, it was an amended form of the Northern Territory Emergency Response, or the Intervention. Proponents of the intervention claim it was introduced in response to the Little Children a Sacred Report into alleged child abuse in the Northern Territory, released in 2007. But critics have claimed that it was little more than a land and resource grab and racially discriminatory. The legislation does provide measures for significant land and tenure reforms in regard to traditional Aboriginal homelands subject to native title. But for the past 14 years, many of those living in prescribed communities have been calling for an end to provisions such as income management and increased policing. And with the end of the Stronger Futures legislation in sight, there are renewed calls to reinstate Aboriginal-led services in affected communities. These were just some of the issues discussed in the online panel discussion, The Endless Intervention, First Nations Speak Out, held earlier this year. Joining the conversation were Barbara Shaw, Deputy Chair of the Central Land Council and town camp resident living under the intervention and Stronger Futures legislation, Greg Marks, international human rights law expert, writer, researcher and advocate for First Nations issues and programs, New South Wales Greens MP David Shoebridge, manager of the Law and Justice section of the Northern Australian Aboriginal Justice Agency, John Rawnsley, and writer, unionist and current Federal Greens candidate for the seat of Cooper, Celeste Little. The event was facilitated by writer and legal scholar Alison Whitaker. Let's listen in now and we begin with Barbara Shaw. It was only supposed to be in place for five years to straighten out the Aboriginal lives and put us all on track and bring us up to standards like the rest of Australians here in Australia. But unfortunately, that never happened within the five year period that the intervention was set in place. Then in 2007, we also had an election which brought us a new government. And everybody knows the history of the intervention, where it came from. Next year, Strongy Futures is supposed to end after 10 years. We don't know where that's going to lead us or take us next year. I know that wherever I go, wherever I'm meeting, whatever boardroom I'm sitting in, whatever other elders that I'm sitting with and leaders, they always seem to mention the intervention and how the intervention brought so much heartache, more than bettering our lives. I guess one of the main things is that, you know, people have always stood up against intervention and against stronger futures and against governments. As a town camper, we still suffer still have police raids, and we all know that communities, outstations and town camps and organisations, we do get scrutinised and we do get stereotyped. We, we're all put into that one bucket where, you know, we're still being demonised and, and our men being stereotyped. And I know over the last 14 years it hasn't stopped what it was supposed to prevent. Um, when it was first put in place. I guess now for myself as a youth worker, I see more kids out on the streets. I find that there are a lot of homeless children because our adult families are also homeless. I only work three days a week, which is good enough that pays the rent because I have my own children to look after as well as um, being a kinship carer. I still look after my family's children. So can't really say much about about my other hats that I wear, especially with um, 
Central Land Council as deputy chair, all I can say is that people aren't happy at all with the intervention still to this day. They know that they've mucked up so much stuff in the community and people are feeling more disadvantaged because of the lack of funds that are going into communities, outstations, homelands and into our organisations and that's the biggest thing about being an Aboriginal person is the lack of funding for our organisations that's supposed to provide a service for us and a clear example of that is Naja and Kalis, for example, Kalis, sorry, or our medical health services not having enough staff out in, in remote communities or CDP taken over by the Shire because it was scrapped under the intervention and that made a lot of Aboriginal people unemployed and jobless. So they are actually struggling to get employment in communities. So, so many things have happened for myself personally as a growing and learning experience and I've grown over the last 14 years, but I still manage to keep up the intervention fight when I'm talking with government and making sure that this is what you did and this is how we live. And the next step is now to talk to the governments, all tiers of governments, about what's to come of next year. And hopefully we won't have a stronger futures and a lot of local decision-making will be handed back to Aboriginal people to run their own affairs in their own communities. You you mentioned um, changes that you wanted to see this time next year and the opportunity that presents. In addition to to local decision-making, if you could ask anything of the government in that period, what would your dream be to see this time next year at the end of Stronger Futures legislation? I I guess while we've got the federal minister there, Ken White, as an Aboriginal man, I would like him to see... And here, a lot of lot of our mob and get out into communities before the next federal election. Because while he's there, I think we should use this opportunity as an Aboriginal man to start talking about what people want, especially around local decision making, and you know, building up their own strength in their own communities. Because we we know that it was a land grab in the start with compulsory land acquisition, you know, and that was to get all the services out there. Apparently, to get everything. To build up our lives and that, and I think we should use this opportunity. And and I and I believe that we did have a strong letter a couple of years ago, and, and I think we should revisit that letter because I think it's up to discussion about certain things in the communities and in in the Northern Territory, especially. You know, just got one more question for you, if that's all right, before we hand the floor over to to Greg. What do you think is necessary, I guess, at this point next year to support the well-being and sovereignty of mob that has been impacted by the intervention? What's it going to take to get back to that point that had existed before the intervention and what kind of needs to happen? Well, one of, one of the main things is that, that I, I support is the convention that happened down at Uluru, um, around Uluru Statement. And it was, uh, I'd gotten involved with three meetings, um, dialogues around the country, and I was also there in the room when the Uluru Statement was drafted. So what's in the Uluru Statement is what people had said around the country. And, and, and you know, it's a myth that it was drafted by a white man or a white woman. So there were over 300 people in that room that put it together. And I, and I think it, it's that now to have that real discussion around, around treaties having a Bill of Rights in our country and, and just getting out there and educating our mob about what they need to do to stand up for themselves around, around the human rights issues and the Uluru Statement because the Uluru Statement was drafted by over 300 Aboriginal people in, in Australia for the non-Aboriginal person to read, to sit around their kitchen table, to sit around with their friends and start discussing what the non-Aboriginal person needs to do to support an Aboriginal person like me to get on with my life, to not put me in the in, in a bucket that demonises and stereotypes everyone. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Our second speaker is Greg Mark. Uh, and Greg Marks is a, a writer, researcher and advocate with long experience in Aboriginal issues and programs in the Northern Territory. He retains links with the Territory and is particularly concerned about the situation of outstation and homelands communities. 
uh, welcome, Greg. The floor is yours. What I want to start saying is that let's go back to the intervention of legislation. So that, that was in August 2007. So everybody knows about that legislation. And pretty much everybody knows about the Stronger Futures legislation in 2012. Now, one month later, that August 2007, in September 2007, there was an MOU called, the, and I'll read the title out, uh, the Memorandum of Understanding between the Australian Government and the Northern Territory Government on Indigenous Housing, Accommodation and Related Services. That's just one month later, but I'm not so sure so many people know about that. I mean, the people on the ground living it know about it, but as a public policy sort of position, I'm not sure the MOU and its implications are so widely known. And I think it's just as important uh, as the actual legislation, And but it's been out of the public view. It's, to my mind, it's a hidden part of the intervention. It's a policy, all right, but it doesn't appear in the NTR legislation. And if you want to find the policy, you have to hunt for COAG documents relating one small paragraph here to another small paragraph there, and it comes out, it's a policy. And the policy, as in stated in the MOU, is for the Commonwealth Government not to provide any funds at all, ever, for homelands and outstations communities in respect of housing and housing-related infrastructure. The MOU said that there are about 500 outstation homeland communities, and I'll just use those terms interchangeably, uh, 500 when the MOU is signed, and I think about 12,000 or 15,000 people, I'm not sure now how many people there, and they are to be excluded forever from any Commonwealth support, uh, except for some money for temporary money for interim money for uh, recurrent expenditure. But when it came to housing or housing refurbishment or capital works-related housing, that was verboten from then on. It was supposed to be left to the Northern Territory Government, uh, which first of all inherited a huge backlog, and secondly, was never going to have the resources to take on that function, that responsibility. So I think that this sort of hidden part of the intervention has been disastrous for Aboriginal life in the Northern Territory in so many ways. So the, the key thing about that MOU, besides all the other information, is this ban on Commonwealth funding. And the MOU was kept secret. It wasn't in a public document, but it fell off the back of a truck, fortunately. And then Lanapoy attached it to a submission to a Senate committee, so it's now a public document. But I, the point I'm just wanting to emphasise is this, I think, is an integral part of the intervention, even though it's taken out separately and seen separately, the two tie together for the same sort of purposes. I mean, and those purposes, as you all know, are basically to grind Aboriginal people down, to disempower Aboriginal people and to assimilate Aboriginal people. Now, uh, and if you look at the national, these are sort of policy documents, but if you look at the National Partnership for Remote Housing, Northern Territory document, which covers a period 2018 to 2023, in that you'll see no mention of housing for homelands or outstations. It doesn't say they're excluded. It just doesn't have to because that old 2,700 policy is still in place. Now, those directly affected by the policy have complained long and loud. You know, Lanapoi, Yingia, Mark, Kuyuya, uh, the land councils, many have complained and some have made the link to the intervention. Um, there's been no change, in my view, whatsoever in that policy that goes back at least 14 years. There has not been a new house built with Commonwealth funds on an outstation for probably about 15 years, maybe 16. So the consequences, um, you know, Barbara's referred to some of those, we don't need to dwell on those, but overcrowding, uh, increasingly an increasingly old house, a lot of houses are now 30 or 40 years old, and they're doing well in any, under any conditions to, to hold up like they have. Yeah, it's just not viable. And it's also, of course, and very importantly, has been the population drift to the major communities and to the regional towns. And we all know the issues, social dysfunction and problems in the major communities and the towns. And it means the inability for many people to live on country with a reasonable level of services, including social housing. So that's the sort of situation that we've inherited and still runs strong in my view. Now, there was a development uh, that looked like it might provide a way through. Uh, and that was uh, that the Northern Territory Government commissioned an independent review of Hamland's policy. And eventually, that after a long time, that uh, policy review findings were released early this year. And the first recommendation uh, was, I think, the particularly important one. So uh, if you can bear with this reading from documents, 
The first recommendation was re-engage with the Australian government and land councils to develop a sustainable policy. That is more or less bring the Commonwealth back in. And the NT government response, as the NT government commits to establishing a new body with land councils and the Australian government to engage and co-design a long-term vision for homelands, including a holistic homelands policy framework. So that looked uh, sort of an opening to start to revisit this uh, policy setting. But then it's all sort of gone quiet. You haven't heard much about it. There's no, apart from that Northern Territory government indicating its position, there doesn't seem to be anything else further much happened about it. Months and months have dragged on. Now, I think there's a reason for that, and that is because I think there's a new game in town, and that policy review is sort of being pushed to one side. So you see the new game, this is what uh, Georgina was referring to, you see the new game in a press release, the former leader of the National Party, uh, Michael McCormack, released at the Barunga Festival. And that news release is headed Generational Reform to Empower Aboriginal Territorians. It says that there will be, that the Morrison McCormack government has co designed with the Northern Territory Land Councils a package of generational reforms to the Aboriginal Land Rights Northern Territory Act to activate the potential of Indigenous land in the Northern Territory. And when you read that through, to my mind, when you read that through, this is a charter for development on Aboriginal land. And it's not a charter, it's going to set up a new corporation, a new statutory body, which will be funded from the ABA, which is, of course, is Aboriginal money anyway. And that corporation will then manage and control and own developments on Aboriginal land. But when you read that, and when you read the fact sheets on the National Indigenous Australians Agency website that talks about these changes, they seem to be much, very much oriented towards mining and other development, economic development. And there's not a single reference to housing, especially, and not a single reference to, reference to homelands in these documents. But this looks like the new game in town. And this is going to be put into effect by amendments to the Land Rights Act. One can read what we know of those amendments so far as further sidelining of traditional owners. But there's a tension between traditional owners and the rest of the system all the time there. If you look at, go back to the Reeves report before, the attempt was to undermine traditional owners. I think that game is always on. It has to be watched very closely. But the thing is, so I think it's all about development, mining, head leases. That's another part of it. Uh, and with some crumbs, I think, for things like art centres. There'll be some, some of the old remnants of the old ABA, the way it was for community support. So the big danger to my mind in this context is that this is a new game in town and that homelands and outstations are going to stay on the sideline. They're going to be out of sight again. And this is, I think, what a lot of people want, actually, want to be cynical about it. But this is a sort of coming up to key time. We've got the um, legislation, Stronger Futures legislation coming to an end next year. But also you've got this new legislation coming in and these new arrangements and a new statutory body. So I think this is a critical time. And if our stations and homelands get left out again, then how you know it could compound 15 years so far, what, another 15, 30 years down the track, and it's going to really constrain the development of our stations. Uh, it's been very constrained till now. Uh, they've been marginalised now. And my fear is that this is going to, at a critical time, happen again. So what I'm saying to everybody, I guess, is be really alert to hold the discussion about the intervention in with discussion about homelands and outstations. And looking at the uh, Stronger Futures legislation, to keep reminding people that this is also about homelands and outstations, even though it doesn't say so, to sort of bind the two things together, the homelands and outstations right in focus, because otherwise they'll be sort of second cousins all over again. And I think that politically it's difficult, I think. I don't think even... I might make a political comment. I don't think at this stage the ALP is going to be as much help at this stage. They're too enmeshed uh, at a federal level in the constitutional entrenchment issue, which is very important, but that's where their focus is. You know, I rang up some months ago uh, office of the Labor Senator in the Northern Territory to see what's happening about their response to the Homelands Policy Review. They didn't know it existed. But I don't think there's, again, there's a focus isn't there. And I think that's our challenge is somehow is to, keep that focus there and keep homelands there, and especially over this next year or so, this new legislation, et cetera, coming in. So that's about it, I think. That's about it, I think. Thank you so much, Greg. I just have one follow-up question for you today. Why is government policy, especially at the Commonwealth level, 
so especially hostile towards outstation and homelands communities? That's uh, the issue, I think. Uh, At the territory level, I don't think there's that hostility, partly because of the electoral consequences, you know, the the homelands people have voted in in the elections. Uh, At the Commonwealth level, um, the policy all changed about 2004, 2005, and I think that was uh, the influence of various writers uh, uh, outside of government, outside of government, but it had a big influence on the government at the time. Various right-wing commentators, uh, the late Professor Helen Hughes, other people had a set against our stations and homelands, and they convinced um, people who were quite willing to be convinced that this, these things had to go. And the attitude taken, and I've heard it across the table, you know, working as a consultant and talk, across the of these policies, who were quite, in those sort of discussions, quite blatant about what they're on about, is that they wanted to get rid of homelands and outstations. And they weren't going to force people physically out of them. They took the attitude, they can stay there, the old people can stay there, but it's the young people we're after, we're going to make it that they don't live in outstations and homelands. So I think there's a deep ideological assimilation behind it. Um, and I think that spreads even out of sort of very, beyond even very conservative people. I think some people who are, if I can say, on the more progressive side, don't really get it about our stations and homelands either. They don't see these places as a, as a basis for uh, finding a role in modern society, fit the closing the gap agenda in their minds. So there's not a lot of sympathy and support out there up outside of the Aboriginal people who, who want it, who want to live on their own lands. So there's a sort of problem there too, I think. Um, and it sort of came suddenly because government policy up to about 2004, 2005 had been quite positive about homelands and our stations, but then it just reversed and it's pretty much stayed there. There's been some rhetorical improvement. Uh, people realise they can't be too nasty about our stations and homelands. Some of the changes at rhetorical level have been a bit more positive, but there hasn't been a lot to back that up underneath. Thank you very much, Greg. I think um, between yourself and Barbara, we have a really chilling illustration of the stakes and the systems that are at play. So I thank you both. Our next speaker is David Shoebridge, and I just, I'll just briefly introduce you and then the floor will be yours. David Shoebridge is a Greens MP in the New South Wales Parliament who works on campaigns including on Aboriginal justice and police accountability. David prioritises working directly with communities to ensure their voices are brought into Parliament. Hand it over to you, David. Yeah, thanks very much, Alison, and and thanks for the invitation to speak to everybody tonight. Well, we we all know it was based on a lie, the 2007 intervention. The military and police response rushed out even before the Little Children is Sacred report was delivered to the Parliament, based upon a lie about Aboriginal child-rearing and child protection which was blown out of the water within weeks by that, by that very same report, which made it clear that the rates of child abuse in the Northern Territory were no different from the rest of the country. And indeed, what it was calling for was that community-led response, working with and empowering First Nations peoples, self-determination and strengthening of First Nations peoples in order to deal with crises that are largely produced by the, the discriminatory economic and political system that First Nations peoples find themselves in, in the Northern Territory and the rest of the country. And, and instead of that, what we got was whole-scale disempowerment, whole-scale removal of structures that were working and providing economic and um, collective empowerment for First Nations peoples, and a clearing away of legal and regulatory barriers to land theft and mining exploration and ultimately resource extraction from the Northern Territory. It was a very clear land and resource grab dressed up as a human rights humanitarian response. And that has played out in the, in the 14 long and hard years that have been experienced by the Northern Territory since. And I think it's worth remembering the political dynamic that was at play in 2007, the, the lies about First Nations childcare practices, the exaggerations of a small body of evidence, much some of which was manufactured for the purpose, and then that classic, I would say, right wing, but some of this was adopted as well by the Labor Party, but that classic right wing distraction of, of politics and policies, trying to sort of steal the narrative in one direction, which was all allegedly about child protection, while using the state and legislation to do to do what they to achieve what they really want to achieve, 
which is that disempowerment, land grab and resource grab, so consistent with two centuries of Australian, of Australian history before that. The fact that the concept of the intervention was touted as a bipartisan program, I think, has, has been part of the reason why 14 years on, we're still stuck with it because there wasn't the courage to resist that violence in the first place. I mean, the Greens were against it, always have been, and spoken strongly against it. But the fact that Labor and the Coalition backed it in at the start really entrenched this directly racist policy in in a way that um, has played out over the last 14 years and makes our task next year of actually unwinding it and removing it from the statute books all the harder. If we can then wind, uh, you know, roll roll forward to 2012, when when there was the first chance, you know, five years on, the sunset clause was there, and it was the first chance to actually scrub the intervention off the statute books, and and as as we know, it was intentionally and deliberately racially discriminatory in 2007. In fact, they suspended the Racial Discrimination Act in order to put the police into those communities in order to remove um, Aboriginal land ownership and in order to discriminate against Aboriginal families and parents. There was a conscious and deliberate and legal suspension of the Racial Discrimination Act. We wind forward to 2012, Labor's in office. They then pretend to withdraw the suspension of the Racial Discrimination Act. And at law, they do. They they say that the Stronger Futures package in 2012 at least pretended to no longer be racially discriminatory. But in practice, it was every bit as racially discriminatory as the the full-blown intervention in in 2007, directly designed and directed at Aboriginal communities, directly designed and directed at Aboriginal families, directly designed and directed at at, um, Aboriginal land ownership. And we also saw the, the entrenchment of the basics card which has had a direct racially target in, in the Northern Territory with, with now 90% of the people um, on the basics card being Aboriginal First Nations people in the Northern Territory. I don't know if, if, it's, if it's not designed to be racially discriminatory. It is, it, at least at law, it was always intended to be focused on and directed on and targeted against First Nations peoples. And if you look at the way it's played out, that's exactly what's played out. And again, it's worthwhile going back and looking at what was said in 2012 by Labor when they rolled out this package. And I might just read from the, the minister's in, introduction to it, Jenny Macklin's introduction, when she was pumping out this, this particular project. She said, our 10-year, $3.4 billion commitment will see us continuing to invest to make communities safer and families and children healthier. We will be helping to create jobs in communities supporting local people to get jobs and giving people living in outstations and homelands certainty that support for basic services will continue. Complementing our new investment, our strongest future legislation will help us to work with Aboriginal people to tackle the issues that communities told us were the most urgent. Continuing to tackle alcohol abuse and the damage this causes, ensuring children go to school every day to get a decent education and that parents play their part in making this happen. Every single indicator that the minister listed in that there has been a dramatic deterioration. There had been a deterioration between 2007 and 2012. And in the nine years since 2012, there has been a dramatic deterioration on every single indicator the minister was was relying upon in trying to underpin this um, her package of both misplaced funding and directly discriminatory legislation. And Greg made it clear just on one of those in terms of the support for people living in outstations, you know, it just failed comprehensively. But, but literally every single indicator, whether it's school attendance, we've seen a dramatic reduction in First Nations kids going to school, um, rates of attendance in the Northern Territory. Meanwhile, white non-Aboriginal kids have seen their attendance rates increase. We have seen a chilling and distressing increase in youth suicides in the Northern Territory, which has directly tracked the intervention, putting not youth suicides in the Northern Territory amongst First Nations kids, Aboriginal kids, at rates that are shameful on an international, any kind of international standing. In terms of making communities safer, just so many more Aboriginal people are now in jail. If the Northern Territory was a country, it would have the second highest incarceration rate on the planet. And if you just looked at First Nations peoples in the Northern Territory, it would be far and away the highest incarceration rate on the planet. One, one indicator you can see that, that has been ticked in, in, since 2012 is this 
ongoing and continued increase of police resources in, in, in First Nations communities. And as, as we know, that has been coupled with very deliberate legislative powers that basically give the police warrantless access to anybody's home in, 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 in remote communities, Aboriginal homes, only Aboriginal homes, warrantless access to their communities to go in, pick out community leaders and basically have a rule of police-led terror in some of those communities. It's hard to comprehend that that's happening in a country like Australia, but of course it's happening in the Northern Territory, away from the observation of most mainstream media. And and it's only when we get people like Barb come forward and tell us the truth about what's happening in the Northern Territory do we get a sense of the real impact of the intervention. I I could give a variety of other indicators, but any fair-minded assessment of this project would say it has been a disastrous failure. We know it was always going to be a disastrous failure because it always always the answers in these communities is empowerment, self-determination, land and treaty. And the intervention is exactly the opposite of all of those key features of any kind of sustainable uh, progress in the Northern Territory. So how do we wind it back in the next 12 months? Well, I think what, what, what should end all of you for coming forward and doing this, and I commend all of those people who came out in, in rallies, small and medium-sized on the weekend, against the intervention. We need to spend the next 12 months in telling the truth about the intervention. We need to spend the next 12 months in in hopefully shaming Labor to finally accept that this was a disastrously destructive process. We need to find ways to platform speakers from the Northern Territory, like Arnie Barb and others, bring them into the mainstream media and and prioritise their voices. But we should also make sure that it's part of the discussion in any upcoming federal election. What will parties do? Will they commit to actually returning land, returning power and delivering self-determination? And that must mean finally having the sun set on this terrible legislation uh, next year in the federal parliament. Thank you, David. Just before we let you go briefly, could I ask you what you see as the main political obstacles to get positive change through in this subject? Well, I I think that the challenge has got to be in flipping Labor's position on it. And, and you know, that, that great tragedy in 2007 when in a moment of, you know, they could see that there was this clear political dynamic being run by Howard and, and, um, and his team and they just gave into it without having any courage. Um, I think it, it's got to be making it clear to Labor that there will be a political cost if, if they don't allow the sunset clause to set. Unless it's clear that there'll be a real political cost to them, they will just roll it over because they are as interested in in resource extraction as the coalition is at the end of the day. They are as persuaded by the big mining companies that they should have access to these resources and strip the royalties and wealth out of the Northern Territory as the coalition is. And they need to make be made clear that there will be a real political price to pay if they don't let the sun set on this shameful policy. But, but I also think there's a harder task after that as well, which is how do you make good the damage of the last 14 years? What's the pathway to re-establishing First Nations control of their communities? How, how do we reclaim access and, and rights over land? Um, how do we reassert those um, rights that have been lost in the last 14 years? And there, there is a lot of damage to be undone as well. Thank you. Um, I might move to you now, John. So we're joined tonight by uh, John Rawnsley, who is the manager of the Law and Justice Section at the Northern Australian Aboriginal Justice Agency, and he has a legal background. John grew up in the Northern Territory, spending his time in his youth and in his adult, uh, both in Darwin and Central Australia. He's from the Larrakia and Armageri groups. He has extensive broad experience, including a, as a current director of the Larrakia Development Corporation and Winkiku Rumbangi NT Indigenous Lawyers Aboriginal Corporation. And is also, if that's not enough, formerly a member of the Aboriginal Areas Protection Authority, former alderman of Alice Springs and deputy mayor. Thank you for joining us today, John. Uh, thanks, Alison. And I know that when reforms do take place and, you know, even recently, that impact Aboriginal people, that heaviness, you know, you can feel it because our people work directly, you know, with community on the ground as well. I'm constantly reminded of their strength, how they inspire me and inspire others. And I I see and I hear that tonight as well. And, you know, over many years as well, you know, when I used to live in Alice Springs and 
hearing Barbara talk about her role as a foster carer and caring for other kids, I guess I, I just want to acknowledge that too because that same sort of strength, and Nala will speak about it later, when it gets heavy, it's, it's that sort of strength that really inspires me and it's something to acknowledge and, and to recognise as well. Just in the short period, what is the intervention? We know that as a single word, like the intervention. It describes like a whole range of different reform efforts. You know, it's the, it's the political messages and the communications in relation to that. It's the law reform piece across lots of different areas, land, you know, criminal justice system, police, all sorts of things. And then I guess it's the, the tone and it's that whole shift as well. And so I guess I, I speak from the law and justice sort of context. One part that's been really important that keeps on coming up is that it's the repeal piece is about the Crimes Act. So legislation was put in place in a time that really restricted Aboriginal circumstances in a court setting and in terms of you know evidence and in terms of things that the court should consider. And there was a recent report that came out from the Anti-Law Reform Committee that talked about sentencing and Aboriginality. And there's a lot of consultations that took place with that report. And, you know, there's lots of consultations that take place over the years, but there were some fairly strong views and unanimous views about repealing that legislation. But also a lot of interesting findings in terms of the language used about, you know, 10, 14 years on, talking to a lot of Aboriginal people and reflecting on that whole shift in politics and what it means in terms of Aboriginality and the, and the court system and the justice system and how that intersects and what's the relationship in relation to Aboriginal law. Um, I encourage people to find that. If you Google it, it's from the Anti-Law Reform Committee. But if you just read the findings, it, it offers some really interesting language that I found interesting in terms of how to explain some of those things. But also, you know, when you reflect on the intervention in the law and justice system, there's so many multiple reports and inquiries and royal commissions that have a lot of um, suggestions and recommendations. Many of those reports have simply been ignored. Like they haven't even attracted a formal kind of government response. There's a lot of substantial work there that should be the reform piece, that should be where the investments, you know, should happen. I guess that, that tone stems back from Little Children a Sacred Report being ignored and then, you know, this other piece coming in. But you go back right from, you know, black deaths in custody to, uh, you know, the Pathways to Justice was an Australian Law Reform Commission report that's about three or four years old. And that's and, and these are substantial reports that engage Aboriginal people and expert matters that don't even get, you know, the recommendations, uh, many of which don't get adequate responses. You contrast that with the law and justice system impacts Aboriginal people's lives in such a dominant way. You know, the, the amount of sort of interactions at a police level, but all types of, of laws, you know, child protection, and, you know, we talk about CDP and we talk about welfare. There's so many different ways that a law and justice system impacts Aboriginal people in such a strong and dominant way, yet the investment in relation to Aboriginal-led solutions around resourcing Aboriginal-led responses and, you know, integrating Aboriginal agency into that whole system is more culturally appropriate, uh, is very little and very small. There's a really strong contrast between those two, those two aspects. That's sort of when you reflect on that whole politics of the intervention, that journey reflects the tone that was set at that time. Another point to make is that because the law and justice system is so dominant, in Aboriginal people's lives, we know from the evidence that interpersonal discrimination, you know, the discrimination that Aboriginal people face just by engaging with other people and what they receive, it impacts mental health, it impacts health, and, like, it, there's overwhelming evidence that points to that. When we talk about a justice system that has very small Aboriginal agency built within it and resource investment in those solutions, whereas our prisons, you know, 84%, uh, Aboriginal people in prison. Aboriginal female prison population is amongst the fastest of any group, you know, growing in the world. We've got a monk imprisonment rate uh, that Aboriginal people face compared to any group within the world. Our youth detention centres are often 100% Aboriginal. When you've got those sorts of characteristics and then you've got so much, so little investment in Aboriginal-led solutions and, and this whole colonial approach of ignoring report after report after report that build and expert opinions, that reflects a sort of colonial 
journey, but also systemic and institutionalized discrimination. And it's very, it's very difficult to build an evidence base in relation to systemic and institutionalized discrimination, but there's a direct link there, right? We don't have that reform piece that has happened. Sometimes we get glimpses of it. Sometimes we get statements and, you know, a refresh or a reimagining or a resetting. And sometimes we, you know, we get these words about potentially shifting. But in terms of, uh, you know, substantive reform and investment, you work long enough in the law and justice space that you, you easily become, I guess, disenfranchised or disenchanted. Again, you know, that, that whole tone reflects, I guess, that, that journey as well. Just to end, you know, what's the sort of solution? What's the, what's the piece to try and get real and genuine change? And it is looking at those reports and it is focusing on a lot of those reform efforts. You know, CDP, APONT, which is an organisation NT, developed and, you know, with the land councils and others, developed a, a comprehensive proposal that related to jobs and uh, welfare. You know, if you look at structural reform, there's a, there's a lot of potential in terms of all of the investment in, you know, the justice system or whether it's out-of-home care or, you know, support for Aboriginal children. There's a lot of potential to shift that to sort of Aboriginal, have Aboriginal people control in terms of the decision-making of where that investment should go. But I also think that it's not just about this message around before the intervention, we need to return to those things because we've got a colonial legacy built into the system that was there before and continues and has been exacerbated in many ways. So I think it's also about that structural, like that reform piece. If you look at the Self-Government Act, for example, like that sets our politics, sets our structure. I don't think we have enough discussion around the importance of looking at some of those fundamental things and, and changing it. And so I guess I want to sort of put those sorts of things on the table as well. Like how many, how many times do you go through a process, a cycle where you have reports and inquiries and investigations and then outcomes and recommendations and then not following through with them or ignoring them? How many times do you go through that cycle without you know, saying loud and clear that there needs to be fundamental change to that whole system that allows that to happen. Thank you, John. Our final speaker for tonight is uh, Celeste Little. Uh, and Celeste, um, who to me knows no introduction, but I will proceed anyway, um, is an Arunda woman who lives in Melbourne, a unionist, a feminist, a writer, a social commentator, and current Greens candidate for the seat of Cooper. Celeste, thanks for joining us today, and the floor is yours. Good evening, everyone. I guess I want to start just that I can't actually believe that we are talking about the intervention 14 years on from when it happened. I find that I find that fact despicable and repugnant. And, you know, it says an awful lot about this country and how it works and who runs it, who's been running it, you know. And how the greater Australian public has allowed a massive human rights abuse. And there's no other way to, well, there's plenty of other ways to describe it, but that's the first way I'll describe it. Um, They've allowed a massive human rights abuse to continue for 14 years. And I wanted to acknowledge Barb there, who has been on the front lines, you know, my sister there, continuously since the beginning, trying to get people to, to listen, to acknowledge, to, you know, to to do something about what was going on. And she was doing so at a time when the media was really deliberately um, seeking out Aboriginal voices who weren't living under the intervention, who um, they could roll out to say that, you know, community people supported it and talking about, um, I guess, basically using certain Aboriginal you know, people who lived in towns or people who were divorced from the situation in some way or people who who provided an acceptable face to um, to justify the government's action. You know, so from Brough Annie's Crocodile Tears, which was done at the 11th hour of a dying Liberal government, like this is a cynical government that knew it was on its way out, had done nothing on Aboriginal um, and Torres Strait Islander rights for the entire time that they'd been in. In fact, they'd continuously tried to remove our stories and our education and that from anything. So the 11th hour 
the 11th hour attempt to look like they were doing something and hold on to power and they failed and then we get the apology you know which was this wonderful warm moment that you know as someone who um, has many stolen gen members in her family you know for a bit there I got to feel a little bit of hope I thought you know maybe maybe we might move forward from this point but straight away they denied compensation for for um, any of the members of the stolen generations and then after the five years trial as nearly everyone else on the panel has said ended with the intervention we ended up with stronger futures and then we ended up with the Gillard led you know administration talking about rivers of grog running through the northern territory and again demonizing populations who for years had had these grotesque signs out the front um you know, no grog, no poor, no anything else out the front, you know, trying to other and and state that these beyond this point live a bunch of people of ill repute. They need to have the, all of their affairs managed. They need to be policed to the hilt. They need the army sent in. That rhetoric continued. The one thing that I'm really concerned about because Next year will mark that time being up and we're looking towards the future. I guess what I am deeply concerned about is the fact that the sorts of programs that have been rolled out in the intervention, so whether it was basics card or, um, you know, even, well, I'll talk a little bit about the CDP and that, but, you know, things like that, those sorts of programs that we've seen rolled out during the intervention, you know, we've seen these bad policies and we're, Anyone, anyone in the crowd who has a, any sort of grasp on post-colonial history in this country and how it's worked will know what I'm talking about. What's happened over and over again with the intervention is that a bunch, bunch of bad policies have been trialled on Aboriginal people first and then they've been taken to more mainstream communities. So the basics card and welfare quarantining measures all of a sudden end up being, you know, going down to South Australia and then being trialled in in other communities and then, you know, essentially privatised for profit. So so these programs can be run for the benefit of um, of wealthy mates of of, um, current governments. So some of the most vulnerable people in the country are being continuously surveilled, having, you know, having everything, all their spendings watched and being monitored and it's being justified. People, the Australian public seem to be okay with this and there only ever seems to be some outrage when it gets closer and closer to impacting more white people. Never mind the fact that, you know, Aboriginal people, and particularly Aboriginal people in the Northern Territory um, who live in homelands. And I, you know, I, I think that um, a lot of people who've never been to the Territory, and I can't just tell many of them I've encountered in Victoria who still seem to think of the Northern Territory as this faraway place that they've never actually villaged and visited rather, and they've got no grasp on. So, the politicians will exploit that. They'll exploit people's ignorance of the territory. They'll use those romanticised visions of homelands and cultures and all of that and and therefore this assumption that people do need to be managed in order to push through these sorts of measures. But when you see them being pushed out to further um, populations and we're seeing welfare quarantining do that, as we speak, I do wonder when mainstream Australia is going to learn. I also wonder that with the CDP, we've had we've had promises that the community development program um, will end in 2023. If I'm incorrect, please, like you know, someone shake their finger at me now um, because it's been a long day. But you know, we've had promises from the current government that. That program will end and a new program will be set up in consultation with the communities. It strikes me that I wonder if we're just going to end up back in a vicious, vicious sort of cycle thing. You know, one of the first things that the intervention did was remove a bunch of self-determined programs from the communities and state that you need to you know, you need to have all these managed. They brought in the CDP a couple of years down the track 
as a way of stopping sit down money, whatever that is, and engaging people in work that in a lot of cases around the country is what would normally just be considered as council work and be adequately compensated, but would also attract things like superannuation, like occupational health and safety legislation, like um, annual leave, sick leave, family leave, cultural leave, all these sorts of provisions that a lot of people in jobs across this country simply take for granted. Oh, and sorry, I did forget too, they also opened it up open up CDP to private enterprise. You know, why on earth? Um, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to wonder why a lot of people in this country weren't questioning that. If a private enterprise that is for profit has access to an endless pool of Aboriginal labour that they don't have to pay for and they just sign on a line to, in order, you know, as a provider of CDP, um, and they've got people who can work part-time hours year-round um, and, can, you know, and they can report them and penalise them and whatever else, then why on earth, where is the incentive to hire any single Aboriginal person in the program? Where's the incentive to grow jobs in the region? There is none because they've got an endless pool of labour that the government's allowing them to feed in all the time. And, and somebody remarked in the chat before that uh, it was glorified work for the dole. And that's absolutely what it was, completely what it was. But what I'm scared about is the same pattern that we've seen with welfare quarantining, which is that this has now been normalised for an entire section of the population. How long until we see CDP measures rolled out across some of our more vulnerable populations all across the country? How long until this just becomes the accepted norm? And who's going to question that? Who's going to stand and stop the um, government from doing that? And one thing that I do need to make clear, I think I've already alluded to it, but, you know, if you've got the Howard government bringing in the the intervention and then you had the, the Labor government, the Rudd-Gillard Labor government continuing it under a different name, can we actually trust either side, either one of the major parties to do the work of rolling back the damage that the intervention has done. But I really hope that next year we will start to see a lot of this stuff wound back and we start to see some of the damage that's been done to communities up there be undone. But um, I don't think that we're going to see that happen without a pretty strong fight and that's a sad fact. You've just heard writer and Federal Greens candidate Celeste Little. You've also been listening to John Rawnsley, manager of the Law and Justice section of the Northern Australian Aboriginal Justice Agency, New South Wales Greens MP David Shoebridge, international human rights law expert Greg Marks, and Barbara Shaw, deputy chair of the Central Land Council. They were taking part in the online forum, The Endless Intervention First Nations Speak Out, held earlier this year. It was organised by the Stop the Intervention and Rollback Action Group and Concerned Australians and was facilitated by writer and legal scholar Alison Whittaker. That's the show for this week. Speaking Out is on Facebook and you can email the program speakingout at abc.net.au. We would love to hear from you. I'm Larissa Berendt and this is Speaking Out. Speaking Out.